Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, is eternal and it remains forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, uh, revile your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so in the reading of our God's word this morning, uh, let us ask his blessing uh, on our time in it. The heavens declare your glory, O God, and the sky it proclaims your handiwork. Every day they pour out speech, and every night they reveal knowledge. But this, your word, is perfect. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. In it we find your precepts, and they are right. They give joy to the heart, your commandments, which are pure and enlighten the eyes. And so your word is to be desired even more than gold. And so we ask that you would let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, uh, that they would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. We finished up our study in the book of Luke last week, and I'm going to spend some time uh, uh, this fall and winter in the Psalms, but today we have a baptism, and I thought we'd uh, look at this passage in 1 Peter 3, uh, starting in verse 15, which depending on your particular comfort zone might be one of the more exciting verses in the Bible or one of the more terrifying verses in the Bible because it simply says this in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you that word defense in verse 15 uh, is just a translation of the Greek word apologia and you may have heard that this is where we get our word apologetics the defense of the faith is how apologetics is typically defined it's that intelligent intellectual defense of Christianity uh, to the skeptic and to the doubter the critic and for some people The subject of apologetics gets their juices flowing, 
so they read books, they listen to podcasts, and they look for opportunities to delve into the archaeological evidence, uh, into philosophy, to discuss the problem of evil, and so on. For others, the subject of apologetics makes them want to run and hide because they hate confrontation, they feel woefully inadequate, and they simply don't want to let Jesus down and look like a fool. So what are we to make of this? Uh, if, is every Christian expected to conquer philosophy, archaeology, rhetoric, logic, and, and basic debate tactics? Or is there something else going on here in 1 Peter 3.15? And if so, what is it? Now, while I certainly think that there are some Christians who are gifted and called to debate these matters on a deeper level, I do not see that as being the responsibility or the calling of all Christians. And I don't see that as actually what's being uh, in view in our passage. In fact, I'm, I'm quite convinced, and I hope to show you why, that Peter has something much simpler in mind, and that's what we want to look at this morning. Uh, What I hope to show you from this passage is simply this. Every Christian should be prepared to defend their hope of heaven, which is pictured and promised in baptism. Every Christian should be able to defend their hope of heaven, which is pictured and promised in baptism. And I'm going to explain what that means as we spend uh, a few minutes in this text this morning. But how to do that, I'd like to look at what Peter is actually calling us to do, what he has in mind. Then I'd like to show you how God demonstrates the Christian message in the flood of Noah and in baptism. And then finally... I'd like to make some reflections on how that affects our conversations uh, with our friends, our neighbors, and with our children that God has blessed us with. So that's really what we want to do this morning. Uh, It's important as we look at this passage to see what Peter actually says. He doesn't say, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the faith that is in you. He says a reason for the hope that is in you. Now you might think I'm splitting hairs, but there's a pretty big difference here. He calls you to defend your hope, not your faith. Now, defending your faith or the faith can can refer to that robust defense of what Christians believe. Things like creation out of nothing or or the uniqueness of of humans as God's image bearers in creation or, or the reality of sin and the necessity of judgment or the historicity of the incarnation of Jesus and his death and his resurrection from the dead. That's defending the faith. Defending your hope simply means telling someone why you are confident that heaven awaits you. There's a difference there. And, and that's a, a different question and requires a different answer. So, so Peter's already told us what he has in mind when he talks about our hope. 
He opens his epistle in chapter 1. After his greeting, he says this. He says that, that we have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable. Uh, to a living hope, to our inheritance that is uh, uh, imperishable. When he talks about your hope, he's thinking about your inheritance in heaven. Uh, More than that, he's thinking about your confidence that heaven is your inheritance, that heaven awaits you. So how do you defend that confidence? How do you defend your assurance, your confidence that you are an heir of heaven, that it awaits you on the last day or if you die before the last day uh, in the life to come? Why are you confident that when history is done and all the dust settles, that the God of creation will welcome you into his eternal home and call you his child? That's what God wants you to be able to defend. That confidence. Now here's where people get nervous. Oh great. How do I do that? Where do I even begin? And I think the problem is that we think Peter tells us what to do. But offers us no help on how to do it. We think Peter says this is what you need to be able to do. Come back to me when you're ready. But that's not Peter. Peter's a shepherd. Peter is one of the gentlest souls you will ever meet. And he's compassionate. And he has sat for three years at the master's feet, soaking in what it means to compassionately and tenderly lead God's people. And so in the next few verses... He goes on to tell you how to defend your hope, your confidence that you are an heir of heaven. And and here is what Peter expects you to know and to believe and when given the opportunity, declare to others. And it's in verse 18. It's this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That that verse ends with Jesus bringing us to the Father in heaven, with a confidence that we will be in heaven, and with a confidence that Jesus is the one that will get us there. But first he tells us how Jesus gets us there. Jesus suffered for our sins. And he did this once, referring to the cross. This is your hope. This is your confidence. What Jesus has done for you. And he explains it a little bit more by saying the righteous for the unrighteous. And and in those five words, we have the entirety of the Christian message. Uh, When Peter identifies himself and us with him as the unrighteous, he's acknowledging simply this, that we are all sinners. All of us have gone astray. Uh, Heaven is for the sinless, for the perfect. And so none of us by ourselves have a claim on heaven. In other words, defending your hope of heaven can never, ever, 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 ever begin with 
I'm a pretty good person, or I, I try to obey. If that is your hope, if that is how you try to defend your eternal hope, you have no hope. Because we are unrighteous. Your hope cannot be in you, the unrighteous. Your hope must be in Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus deserves heaven. He has earned it. And therefore, it's his to share with whom he chooses. But in order to share it with sinners, he must first endure the judgment they deserve. And that's why he had to suffer once for for our sins. Verse 18. The only reason you can have any hope of going to heaven is because Jesus, who didn't deserve judgment, endured judgment in your place. That is the only reason anyone can give as having any hope of going to heaven. And so when you're called upon to give a defense for the hope that is within you, that's all God expects you to say. Something like this. Jesus died in my place and promised to bring me to heaven if I trust in him. That's it. That's it. That's all Peter expects from you. I'm not saying we don't need people who can respond to the skeptics. Not at all. I'm just saying that not all Christians are called to do that. But all are called to be able to explain where their hope lies. But Peter's not done helping us. Like he gives us a real simple answer. Here's my hope. Here's my confidence. Jesus, the righteous, died for the unrighteous to bring me to God. That's my hope. But then he goes, okay, let me give you a few pictures to illustrate this and help you explain it. And the first that he gives is is the flood of Noah. And no, Pastor Isaac and I did not coordinate this. We talked about Noah's flood in in Sunday school. It's just how God works. But, But your hope that you're called to defend is pictured in Noah's ark. And let me explain how. So the flood uh, was a great global act of judgment. And Peter will say in his second letter that it was a picture of the final judgment on the last day. Uh, It's a picture then of what everyone deserves for his or her sins. And that means that it wasn't just those out there that deserved to be carried away in the flood. It means that Noah and his family did as well. And so so judgment was coming. And if Noah's only hope is in his own strength, (laughs) his ability to tread water, (laughs) then he has no hope And he will perish with everyone else. If that's his hope, that he tries really hard and he's a pretty good swimmer, he has no hope. But God offered Noah another way, an ark. If Noah would trust God's provision and not his own strength, he would come safely through that judgment onto the other side. The end of the world would not have the final word, but but he would take possession of a new creation. 
in a very real sense, Noah and his, his family went through the judgment, but they did so tucked safely inside the ark. And so, as that judgment rained down and it was poured out, it was the ark that took the brunt and was beaten and battered and driven and tossed. And while it endured the fury of God's judgment, those who were inside were safe and protected. Now, before the flood, if someone had asked Noah, what confidence do you have that the coming flood won't destroy you and your family? What's the basis of your hope? Noah could have simply responded, God has given me a way through. He's provided an ark, and as long as I'm inside, I'm safe. That's all he would need to say. Now, Maybe he could have added something like, there's lots of room, you're welcome to join us. But that would be his confidence that he will survive the judgment. The ark was a picture of Jesus and what trusting in him looks like. On the cross, he was the one who was beaten and battered, driven and tossed, enduring the fury of his father's own judgment. Those who trust him are like Noah and his family, safely protected by Jesus so that they can come through God's judgment unscathed. And so protected by Jesus, they need not fear the judgment. And so if someone asks them, you... What confidence do you have that when you die, God won't be angry with you, but let you into heaven? What's the basis of your hope? You can simply reply, God has given me a way through. He has provided Jesus who who suffered what I deserve in my place. And as long as I'm with him, I'll be safe. That's all you need to say. Or you might want to add, there's plenty of room. (laughs) You're welcome to join me. And that's really Peter's point here. When he talks about defending the hope, he's thinking about evangelism, sharing your faith. Evangelism is born, it's born out of compassion, a desire to see the other person in heaven. And unfortunately, much of what passes for apologetics today is much more interested in winning arguments than it is winning souls. And I don't say that to pass judgment. I confess my own tendencies. And so Peter admonishes us, this is to be done with gentleness and respect. It's easy to think that our reputation is on the line, that people will think us fools if we don't defend our position. But Peter isn't remotely worried about that. In the two verses prior to our passage, verses 13 and 14, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter's saying, Let them think you a fool. Don't worry. Jesus is honored. But you might be surprised. I, I, I'm not saying no one, but I don't know a lot of people 
who were persuaded by deep philosophical arguments. But I have met many people who weighed down by their sin needed to know where hope is found. How someone like me or someone like you could find peace, forgiveness, confidence in facing death. God can use your faithful witness to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ to accomplish great things. But it's not just our neighbors who need to hear this. Parents also need to explain this to their children. Yes, our children are holy. That is, they're not a part of the world. They're a part of the church. And they are raised in the context of God's family, which is one of the sweetest blessings a child could ever hope for. But that blessing does not save them. Each child must come to the point where he or she understands his or her own sin and need for a savior. And a parent's greatest responsibility and greatest privilege is to be the primary messenger of God's good news. Parents have the wonderful honor of of teaching their children both about sin and God's way of salvation. We don't just defend um, the hope to our neighbor, but we do so to our children as well. And to help us do this, God has given us another gift, and he tells Peter about it in verse 21. He says that, that baptism has the very same imagery as the flood and Noah's ark. The waters of baptism are a picture of God's judgment like the waters of the flood. And that's why Jesus calls his death on the cross his baptism in Luke 12 and Mark 10. And that means that the, the, the water in baptism is a picture of what we, the unrighteous, deserve and what Jesus, the righteous one, was willing to endure to save us and bring us into heaven. So in a very real sense, the very first presentation of the gospel message our children receive is their baptism. And so a parent's job then is to unpack and explain that beautiful imagery to them as they grow. As Joe and Julie in just a couple minutes come up and bring Ethan to be baptized, this is what's happening. Ethan is receiving a picture of the way of salvation, uh, the way of hope. But baptism is is more than a picture. As a sacrament, it's also a seal or a a pledge or a promise. In other words, it's it's God's uh, assurance that those who place their hope in Jesus do not do so in vain. God has sworn, and when God swears, he's not allowed to change his mind. And he's sworn that those who trust in Jesus will inherit heaven. And and so this is great cause for joy and confidence. 
Joe and Julie, this is the message you guys get to unpack to Ethan and, of course, Joseph. And this is what begins for Ethan today with his baptism. The message of hope is being proclaimed to him and to us in baptism. So I'd like to ask Joe and Julie to come forward, and I'd like to ask uh, Pastor Isaac and the elders to come forward as well. We, as Christians, have a unique understanding of our children. I think it's easy to, to fall off onto one of two extremes. To either think that uh, because our children are born into Christian homes, that they don't need to profess faith, that they don't need forgiveness, and this is an error of all, we all do. And the other error is to think that, there's, that they're somehow outside of God's family until that happens. And we say, no, we get the unique privilege of raising them in the Christian family, explaining to them both their need and Christ's provision. And that's just a great, great privilege. What a joy and what a great smile. Uh, (laughs) So awesome. And so um, that means that that baptism, Julie, is as much about you in that sense as it is about Ethan here because you're the ones who are saying, we understand that this is our privilege and our responsibility. And so I have a few vows for you before. Uh, The same ones as we did for Joseph, so we're practiced, we're rehearsed, this is good. But do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, that they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? And do you promise to teach diligently to Ethan the principles of our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession and faith and catechisms of this church? And do you promise to pray regularly with and for Ethan and set an example of piety and godliness before him? And do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Ethan up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessings and the full obligation of the covenant. Wonderful. All right. Ethan Pahuda, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a great privilege. Having children is a great privilege. Having family around us is a great privilege. And receiving children into your church is a great privilege. But with every great privilege comes great responsibility. May we as a church come alongside of Joe and Julie. May we be faithful uh, encouragers as they seek to unpack the hope of heaven to Ethan and to Joseph. May what has been pictured in Ethan's baptism one day be reflected in a deep faith and confidence so that he might one day defend the hope that is within him by telling somebody, let me tell you about my baptism. Father, we long to see that day. Be with Ethan. Strengthen him. Encourage him. Build him up, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that is my eternal um, 
goals in life is to shape our language that when children in our church profess faith, we do not say they are becoming members. Our children are members of our church. We just have two kinds, non-communicant and communicant. Um, Ethan is a member of our church. He's not outside. He's inside. Not one of them, one of us. Uh, And that's a good reminder for us uh, that we all have a ministry to each other to love and encourage and serve each other. Uh, Children, remember that you are dear to God and you are dear to us. Um, And we do look forward to the day when our children grow up like we had last week and say, I want to say that I'm not here simply because I was born in this church or in my family, but because I know that I am a sinner who needs grace and I know that Jesus is a great hope for sinners. And so we look forward to that day when when we get to see that with Ethan. Now, to baptism, God adds a second promise. And and it's not because... um, He needs to make two promises because one is not enough for his word to be true. Um, God's not saying, I really, really promise. Uh, We need a second promise because we are quick to forget. Uh, And so as time passes from your baptism, you might grow doubtful of his promises. That it really could be as simple as trusting Jesus. And so each week, God renews that promise with another picture that proclaims that he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In the Lord's Supper, we see the same reality. Uh, and, And as we receive yet another promise from God, he comforts our faith. And he assures us that our hope is not misplaced, that heaven is our inheritance and it awaits us. And so coming to the table helps you to know how to defend the hope that is within you. It pictures for you what Jesus has done to bring you safely through judgment. And so come, receive. And be assured that your hope is not in vain. This meal belongs to all who have placed their hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, To use a metaphor, who got in the ark. Uh, If you said, I can't tread water, my hope is not in myself, I don't think I'm pretty good or good enough or try really hard... If, you're, if your hope is, I have no hope except for Jesus and what he has done for me, I place my trust in him, then this meal is for you. Part of what that means, I need to remind every week, especially in an age where uh, we take accountability so lightly, that part of what following Jesus means is following him in the context of a local church where you can be encouraged, confronted if needed, uh, held accountable. And so this meal is for those who have uh, 
called their sin what it is, asked for mercy and grace, and who have uh, become communing members in good standing of a Bible-believing Protestant church. If that describes you, we invite you to come and to receive with us this morning and be reminded of God's grace. If that's not yet true or not currently true, then the Lord's instruction is to wait until that's been taken care of, and we'd like nothing more than to, to walk you through that process. Um, it's also my duty, uh, as the scriptures make clear in a number of places, that we don't come and take this lightly. We don't think that, that just coming to the table can take away our sins. Um, that it's okay to sin all week uh, because I'm going to take the table. The Lord says when you, when, you, when you act that way, you make things worse. You abuse his grace. This table, yes, is because we keep sinning, but it's for us in our sorrow over our sin and our desire for strength to fight our sin. Uh, And so we come, uh, not with pride, not with arrogance, not entitlement, but gratitude and humility. So let us give thanks before we come. Our most merciful Savior, we, we look at this meal and we marvel. For not only does it remind us of your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, all of which we do not deserve, but reminds us that you made a promise. And so as we behold this meal, we are reminded that your seal is affixed to your word. You've made a pledge and you will not change your mind that if we trust in you, we will inherit heaven. If we call out to you, you will not forsake us. If we take up our cross, it will not be in vain. That you take note of our sacrifice, you delight in our obedience, and that you are with us You are in us and we are in you. And you are transforming us into your own image. And so we ask that you would bless this meal to the work of grace that you are doing in us. May it strengthen our faith. May it comfort our souls. And may it assure us of our hope. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.